by us, and um, we're going to be able to partner with them. Uh, they're in the core team building process right now, uh, and they're going to be close to us. They're uh, from a sister church uh, up in the Wells Branch area, and so we're really excited about Holland. Um, the reason he was up here leading is because, A, he's a man of all trades, unlike me. Um, we, uh, all of our regular worship leaders and stuff were either out of town or working this morning. Uh, the guy that was coming in canceled on us on Thursday night, uh, and then we got 11 people that rejected us on Friday morning, all right? And so that was kind of weird. Holland heard about it, said, hey, I can come in and lead. We're not going to make an album today, but I can help, all right? And so literally, it was either going to be me leading, which you all would have left before the second song, or we would have had a really spiritual silence and solitude time that seemed like it was planned, but it was an accident, all right? And so really thankful for Holland. Holland actually may be leading us uh, in uh, preaching over the summer at some point, preaching here at the well. And so thank you, man, for serving and stepping in last minute. Um, All right. Uh, one quick thing before we kind of dive in. Uh, when you came in on your seat, there was a communication card. If you can fill that out uh, at some point uh, during the service, a really great time would be when I go through my whole spiel about Bibles and version app and all that stuff, all right? Um, but we want everybody to, uh, to be connected. We want to see who is here worshiping. And so please take some time to fill that out. Drop in the offering at the end. A great way for us to see who's worshiping with us and to stay connected to you and for you to sign up for things. So if you're not in things like community groups. We'd love for you to sign up, be a part. We'll get connected with you. All right. Thank you, Huli. Here we go. All right. Um, So we are starting our summer series on 1 Timothy today. Uh, And so we will be in 1 Timothy throughout the whole summer. uh, And we'll be spending time kind of tackling the book as a whole. So to be honest, I'm actually very, very excited about the book. Uh, It'll have a lot of sort of controversial claims. Uh, There's a lot of weeks where I'm kind of half excited to tackle them, half scared that our attendance will drop in half afterwards. All right. Um, But we'll see how that goes. And so what I'm actually going to do is I'm just going to give all the hard topics to Bob, and then he's going to leave to Brazil, and we won't see him anymore, and so then you can blame him, all right? Sorry, Martha. Um, So anyway, uh, we have a lot to cover, so actually, let's dive right in. If you have your Bibles, grab them. First Timothy uh, will be in chapter 1, walking through that today up through verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, Please feel free to grab and to keep that. It's our gift to you. If you don't own the Word, please take that home with you. We want you to have a Bible. You can also follow along on your smartphones if you wish. On the Uversion app, under the tab section, click on events, type in the Well Austin, and all of our notes and stuff like that should come up so you can follow along there. If you don't have Uversion, don't know what I'm talking about, you can take this link. Whoa, that's closer than it usually is. Uh, you could take this link, put it right into your browser, and you'll be able to follow along. If I fall today, there is, you can't laugh at that, all right? Um, so, <laughs> all right, <laughs> here we go. Um, 1 Timothy, ready? Chapter 1, pick it up in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, his sort of main disciple and his main mentee. If you read other books of the Bible, you'll see that Timothy was actually a big counterpart to Paul. He was a co-laborer with him, is a better word, where he would really help Paul in a lot of ways. He actually co-authored six of Paul's 13 letters. And so Timothy is really dear to Paul. So Paul had a great affection for Timothy. You see that even in the the phrase, the verb is a true child. You are my my true child. Like, like I am really truly connected to you. You are somebody who, who I am partnered with, right? Um, Paul helped plant the church at Ephesus, and then he actually left Timothy, which we'll see in verse 3, to be the lead pastor of that church. And so what this letter is, the idea around this letter is that Paul, the church planter, is writing to Timothy, the lead pastor at Ephesus. And he's kind of helping him see what the church is and, and how he should run the church, and he's giving him instruction, okay? And so this uh, letter will be relevant for us in a couple of ways. One, what Paul is helping Timothy do is to see how to take a church and kind of how to help establish it. And so for us as a church plant, one of the things that I hope we see through this series as a whole is that how do we go from kind of church plant to established church? What does it look like to continue taking steps to grow in maturity, to be structured, organized in such a way where we can be here for the long haul? 
Like, it's really, really good. The work that we've done is good, but we don't want to be a flash in the pan, right? Like, what does it look like for 10 years from now to be planting churches ourselves, from 20 years from now to have tons of churches planted, to have tons of missionaries sent? What does that look like? And so Paul is sort of helping Timothy understand how do you structure the church? How is it that you bring order in the midst of some of the chaos that's going on in the church as a whole? The other thing that Paul is doing to Timothy is that he's helping him understand how to take some of the chaos in the world around him and how to make it so that you live in a biblical mindset. He's saying, hey, look, there's a lot of crazy things going on in Ephesus right now. Here's actually how you live in light of that. Here's how you uh, organize. Here's how you think. Here's how you structure. Here's how you act in light of all the different things that are happening in the world around you. And so the other thing we'll see is that, hey, how do we then as a local church live amongst the chaos in the world around us? How do we bring order into our own lives and even to the world around us at large? And so if you missed last week, just real quick, it may be good to go back and to listen to that at some point because last week we talked about the value of the church at large. What does it look like to be a church body? How do we function? How do we uh, be members of the body together? And so this letter, we're going to get into some very practical issues for us, all right? And so Paul to Timothy, that's kind of the the direction we'll be going. Um, Today we're going to be tackling through verse 11, and the idea that we'll be talking about is doctrine, all right? So having sound doctrine or or having good doctrine, having having solid theological thoughts that are good and healthy about God, okay? I don't think that it's a mistake, and you'll see this all throughout the letter, that Paul put this of first importance to Timothy. And so the very first thing that Paul said, he he opened up and penned, hey, welcome, you know, Paul to Timothy, my my child in the faith, grace and peace to you, that's like his, his welcome to him. And then right away, as you'll see in a second, he jumps right into this idea of doctrine. Timothy lived in a world very much like ours today, where truth wasn't really honored that much. Truth wasn't really sought after, wasn't really highlighted. A lot of people desired to know about truth kind of loosely, but nobody wanted to establish themselves in like singular truths. It was a very pluralism society that they lived in. So there was a lot of different truths. It's kind of whatever you want to believe, what's good for you, and I'm going to seek my own way and that will be good for me and let's kind of live in harmony together. That was the city of Ephesus. Well, it sounds a lot like the city of Austin, right? And our culture today as a whole where, yeah, truth is good. Like there there are some true claims, but we don't know if there's like objective truth. We don't know if there's like one singular truth. How do we learn to live in harmony with with all of these opposite and, and different truths? And so we live in a very similar world that Paul and Timothy were living in. So true is our culture. And so I think this will be very, very relevant for us, okay? Um, if we can't explain some of the simple, observable truths, then how are we to tackle the harder and the deeper issues? And so Paul is going to help Timothy walk through that and think about that. So as a culture, you know, or I hope you know that we're becoming less and less convinced that truth even exists at all. And this is a very, very dangerous mindset and a very, very dangerous way of thinking, which we'll see that Paul highlights even here. It can lead into very, very slippery slopes that not only end up affecting us individually, but our culture as a whole, end up doing a lot of harm rather than good. And so Timothy was pastoring a church very much like in our culture today. So here we go. Let's pick it up in verse three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So there we go. We see Paul left Timothy to make sure right or good doctrine was being proclaimed or being believed in. There are many different dangers to uh, false doctrine and to not believing just the truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture, the truth of how God has orchestrated and ordained life as a whole. First of all, they promote speculations. It says there in verse four, 
right? Not having good doctrine, not preaching the right thing. It, it promotes speculation. So we don't really know if it's true or not. We're speculating. We're just sort of going back and forth on this. We're, we're never really arriving at anything that's necessarily concrete. We're just trying to kind of figure out. We're speculating. We're, we're going back and forth with each other. Is this true? I don't know. Here's what I think. Here's what I think. We're kind of swinging all over the place. They promote speculations, he says. He says the aim of our charge is love. We see that in verse 5. But then in verse 6, certain people swerved away from these doctrinal truths and therefore they carried on into vain or another word for that is empty discussion. And so they were just kind of saying things. They weren't really saying things that were important or saying things of value, but they were just endlessly discussing these vain or these sort of empty ideas. And so bad doctrine and then not acting in love leads to endless or vain discussion. Paul says, I mean, the aim of our charge is love. If you don't have that, it's just going to be an empty, vain, meaningless, over and over and over. You keep talking about this thing idea. And a lot of times it sucks you in. They promote speculations, right? The, the things about these is that they're never really settled. And so part of you, you kind of want to figure some of this out because you're like, hey, this isn't really settled. I, I want to see what's going on here. I want to I put my input in this. I want to I help. And so you keep running back to them over and over and over again. It's like really, really bad clickbait. You know, it's like you see this idea and, and you know that you probably shouldn't talk about it, but then like you go into it anyway. It's like the clickbait, you know you shouldn't click on it. It's like, you'll never believe what happens. And then you click on it and it's like, this isn't even a good article, all <laughs> right? But they get you sucked in, right? That's what speculations does. I mean, this isn't even a good, worthy conversation most of the time, but they pull you in, they, they draw you in in certain ways. You don't want to tackle them, but you have to. And so instead of pursuing righteousness and, and godliness, like verse five tells us to, in the midst of love, instead of doing that, we pursue empty conversations that don't really promote faith or good works. They don't really do anything for us as a whole. And so here's our first First point for today then, okay? And here's what I hope that we see as we go throughout this, is we, I hope we see one of the beauties of doctrine, one of the, the beauties of, of what it means to think correctly, okay? Because here's the idea. A lot of us really don't care about doctrine that much, and that's a very dangerous place to be in. We don't think that highly of it. We don't care that much. We don't, we don't care about theology. We want to really practical, hey, give me the, the ready-to-eat meal. We don't want to cook it up ourselves, right? But this is, this is not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. And so I hope that by the end of the sermon, you actually see the value of it and your heart starts coming alive a little bit to say, man, maybe I should dive deeper with the Lord, okay? And so our first point, God doesn't want just right thinking. He wants right living, Okay, God doesn't just want us to think right. He wants us to also live right. So verse five shows us this again. The aim of our charge is love, he says, and, and it promotes these good things, right? However, right thinking does necessarily lead to right living. Are you tracking with that? Two people. All right, let me go forward. Correct orthodoxy leads to correct, correct orthopraxy. That's the point we have. Or in English, because that's not English at all, okay? Correct thinking leads to correct actions. That's what that means, right? So correct thinking does, it, thinking influences the way that we live big time. And unfortunately, many people in our culture today don't really believe that. They think you can kind of think whatever you want to think and then not realizing that their actions will actually follow suit with that, right? So like, let me give you like a, a really simple example. So uh, say that I sincerely think it's okay to murder, all right? Like I, I, like I sincerely think in my heart of hearts, like I just, I think, I mean, it is, it is okay to murder. I don't think anything is wrong with murdering people. And so I don't believe in solid truth, right? Because the truth says, no, it's not okay to murder. But I don't believe in that truth. And so I don't think that, that murdering is bad, that you shouldn't just murder for, for sport or for the fun of it. Right? I think that that's an okay thing. And so I don't listen to that. And what I begin to do is I just start slaughtering humans. Whatever. I can murder because that's what I want to do. Some of you are like, that's an aggressive word. All right? I thought of that word because of slaughter street for some reason. That just popped in my head. All right? uh, but like, if I think this way, if I think, hey, look, murdering is okay. There's nothing wrong with this. Then I will assuredly murder somebody, particularly if I don't have consequences to those actions as soon as it benefits me. Right? So like, you come to church this week and you don't tithe? Warning, all right? Next week you don't tithe, murder, okay? Like, like you need to do so that everybody else sees this is what you should be doing because I don't believe in solid doctrine or truth, right? Or even if, like you may say, well, well, we have a law that says don't murder, but people murder anyway. Well, yes, that's true, but not as quickly, 
right? Like if there was no, everybody just whatever, it was like the purge, we could do whatever we wanted to do, right? Like people would probably be more prone to do that, right? But the law actually curves this, and even better yet, they don't do it with a pure heart and a good conscience, like verse 5 says, it stains them. There's something wrong. They know because their doctrine or their, 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 their philosophy of life tells them that this is a bad thing. They are not able to do it and just jump into it like whatever, right? And so if I have bad doctrine though, what's going to tell my heart? What's going to tell my mind, my heart, my conscience? What is it going to tell it? Hey, this is not okay, right? So maybe a, 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 a better analogy uh, would be like lying, okay? Like, man, if I just think it's okay to lie, then aren't I going to lie at every given moment where it benefits me? Now, we know some people like that, right? We know some people that really struggle with their tongue. They, they always are trying to tell a story to make themselves look a little bit better, always trying to, but like lying tells us, man, that's not an okay thing. If I keep lying, can't you see how the negative repercussions of that would play out in the long run? Like, what would that mean for my wife? How does she know I'm telling the truth to her? What does it mean for my daughters? What does it mean for you guys? What if I'm lying right now, <laughs> right? Like you would have no idea, okay? And so things like, like honesty or integrity, things that we say are good things, I would actually forsake those because I don't believe in what is a true truth, that lying is bad, right? Are, so you're tracking with that? And so what you think really does affect your actions is what I'm saying. When you think certain things, you're going to act in certain ways. And so um, th- this is important for us to really realize that doctrine matters. Like what we think really matters because it really does influence who we are. Let me give you a more practical example for a lot of the Christians in the room, okay? Or even maybe you're, you're wrestling with God as a whole, okay? If your doctrine tells you that God is a ticked off God, that's what your doctrine tells you. God is a ticked, he's a mad, he is an angry God. He's always angry, right? He's mad at you. He's a rule stickler. Every time you break it, he gets really infuriated. And every time he, he tries just not to smite you or crush you, every time you do something silly, he has to do everything in his power to withhold himself, not to crush you. You silly little boy, right? Like what if that's what, the way God thinks? Like what if that's the way that, that we perceive God? If this is your doctrine, then what begins to happen well, several bad things. One of them is they will have a really hard time believing that God is a God of love and grace because that's very anti that, right? It'll be really hard for you to believe the scriptural truths that say, man, God is love. God came to give grace upon grace. God came to, to shower you with his affections. He, he dances over you with loud singing. Like it would be hard for you to think about that. What you would also think is that your salvation and your relationship with God depends on your works, because if you think that God is angry, what you're going to do is always be trying to appease him by your works. And so instead of believing the true gospel of grace, what you'll believe in is a, is a perverted gospel of works. That says you have to work in certain ways to be made right with God. And so your bad doctrine, your bad theology about God will actually keep you from running to God when you do indeed make mistakes because you think he'll be mad at you and instead you'll run away from God. The exact opposite the direction you should be going in the first place. So all of a sudden we realize that when we think certain thoughts in our head, it really does influence our actions. Because for me, this is something that I struggle with. I often think God as a boss rather than God as a friend. God as a king rather than God as a husband. Me, his bride. Now, this is true. God is a king. He is sovereign. He is overall. But there's this other piece too. And if we don't add in these doctrinal truths, if we don't shape our understanding of God or of the world around us, then truly we will not be living in the right way, okay? And so your bad doctrine will, will keep you from running from God. It will keep you from living right. It'll really be for your harm. And so when Paul tells Timothy, hey, firstly, make sure that people are thinking the right thing, this is an important truth that I think a lot of us don't think a lot about because half of our culture and half the times we just think, man, this doesn't really matter a whole lot. Like systematic theology is for the, the seminary grad, not for me. And that's not helpful, okay? 
Even look at the language Paul uses in, in verse three. He says, I urged you, Timothy, like, like I, I pleaded with you, I, I implored with you. He, I put this in my letter and I put it as in first importance because I already urged you before, make sure this is happening. The endless myths and the genealogies they were thinking in their time were, were doctrinally off from the gospel. Okay, they, they were promoting things that didn't really make a whole lot of sense and they were trying to figure out deeper truths and the truths that were laid out in Christianity. And so one of the things I think about is like, what are some of the doctrines of our time that promote vanity or that promote endless speculation rather than love, the love of God and the love of other people, right? If the aim of our charge is love, what are some things that we find ourselves in that we're continually just kind of running over, over and over again? It's vain, it's empty, it's meaningless. Thinking matters, okay? Despite what our current culture would say, thinking truly does matter. You have to use your brain, which as a total side point, okay, uh, this is an important piece about Christianity. A lot of people think that Christianity is like you shutting your brain at the door and just like jumping off a cliff and hoping you fly, okay? That is not, that has to be further from the truth. First of all, God created the brain. Do you believe that? I got one amen on that. The rest of you guys, all right, you there? Like God created your brain, which means he wants you to use your brain. And so Christianity is actually a very thinking religion where you figure out how do these things make practical sense in light of what I know about God and the world around me. And so doctrine matters. What you think matters. You don't shut your brain at the door. If anything, your brain comes alive because you see things more clearly. You see there's a creator behind everything. There's a sovereign behind everything. You realize the problem with the world is sin and that Jesus comes to fix that and things start making sense, but that all connects logically. It's not just emotion. It's not just faith. Though those things are a part of it too, but you need to think. God gave you a brain for a reason. Man, use it. Don't despise that gift of a brain by shutting it off when you come to Christ and just thinking, oh, it's just like fairy, fairy dust, right? I'm just going to believe and something's going to happen. Like, no, like God gave us a brain to use. Use it. Doctrine matters. What you think matters, okay? It's not just cold, hard, uninteresting data. It really does breathe life, okay? Verse eight. Now we know <clears throat> that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul is giving a list of sins here. And listen, it's important that we understand the significance of sin, okay? And not call something that is detrimental to ourselves or to society, okay. You tracking with that? Because that's what our current culture would have us believe yeah, it's just okay, right? Like we need to understand that sin truly does have an effect on people. It really changes things around us. It, it hurts those that we love. But there's a reason why God would order things and call certain things bad or wrong and say not to do them. And it's because he loves us. And it's because he wants our joy. He, he wants our good. And so the culture would have a strip our definition of sin. That word sin for a lot of people is even like a, a, a hard word. Like they don't like hearing that word. It sounds dirty to them. But listen, this is what it is. It is offensive. It is different than who God is. And so it's important to call something that is unhealthy or that is off wrong. That is not a good or okay thing. Not because we're being judgmental, but because we're actually loving the exact opposite. When Micaiah does something that is wrong, my daughter, I say that is wrong because I'm judging her. No, because I know what's best for her. Scripture knows what's best for you. God created you. God knows you. God knows the way this world operates because he was also the creator of that. He knows what's best for us. So when he says, hey, this isn't good or healthy, he knows what's good. He knows what you should do. This is an important thing, okay? So thinking poorly truly does lead to acting poorly. And so we want people to think rightly because we want this world to be in harmony or to be in a better place, okay? A couple of ones to point out because I'm sure they either stood out in a big way or they kind of hid from us, all right? The first one is homosexuality, okay? 
I understand that in our culture, that's sort of a, a hot button topic for our culture today, okay? I told you I'd get emails every week of this sermon series, it seems like, all right? Um, we addressed this topic at large almost a year ago today when we were studying James, okay? And so here's what I want you to do. If you have a question about that, if you're like, hey, what is the Christian stance? What is the well stance? I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon series. The reason I'm pointing you there is not because I'm trying to skirt the issue at all. It's because we already tackled it, but we have 45 minutes to tackle it versus like 25 seconds, okay? And so I would encourage you, go listen to that. It was in James chapter one. It's online if you want to look at that. And it was at the end of James chapter one, and we addressed it as a whole. How do we respond to it as Christians in love? How do we still stand on biblical truth? What does it look like? Why does God think this way? And so we tackled that issue at large, okay? So go uh, look at that. Because it is a big and confusing issue, though, I will say this. If you struggle with that, if you struggle with homosexuality, if you're like, man, I don't know how to, how to operate in this, I would love, man, talk with me, talk with one of the elders at the well. We would love to walk through that with you. If you struggle with uh, Christian understanding of homosexuality, man, talk to one of the elders, talk to us, because we would love to help walk you through why does scripture lay it out the way that it lays it out, okay? But once again, we see culture a lot of times bucking against what God would say, man, this is how we are to live our lives, that being one of them. Um, secondly, enslavers, you see that word there? I had to look this word up actually, okay? Like, what the heck is that, okay? An enslaver is someone who captures people and sells them into slavery. That's what it is, all right? And so once again, anyone who says that scripture condones slavery, which is a big knock in the Bible, has very bad doctrine. They don't read the Bible well, okay? Like, have y'all heard that before? This is one of the things that people say, ah, I don't know if I could believe in Christianity because it doesn't say anything against slavery. Uh, yes, it does. It says this is a bad thing. In fact, what Paul is doing here is he's taking the Ten Commandments and he's taking commandments five through ten and he's naming all of them. Thou shalt not kill. Murdering is bad. And then what he does is he says, hey, look, thou shalt not steal. And what Paul says is, hey, actually, even more than stealing, the worst possible way you can steal is to take another human's dignity and to sell that into slavery. That is the, the biggest theft that you can do. And so Paul is very anti that. So people who say that, man, the Bible doesn't speak against it, they don't see the fullness of scripture. They're just saying things they probably heard other people say and never read themselves anyway. And so the Bible does speak against some of these things, okay? Finally, I want you to notice a phrase that Paul gives a couple chapters from here. First uh, Timothy 4, chapter 1 and 2. Look at, this, look at this real quick. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. I'm sorry, I'm in 2 Timothy. I was like, this is not what I was thinking about. Here we go. Let's try this again. Ready? 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Stop. Whose consciences are seared. Okay, that's an important phrase there. Throughout this scripture, we see this idea that it's possible for you to ignore what the Bible has to say about sin enough to where it actually sears your conscience and you no longer begin to think what is bad is actually bad. You just think it's mediocre or in some cases you think that it's good. For the Christian, what often happens, Ephesians 4, says that we have the ability to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so we can sin in such a way where, where we grieve or we hurt the Holy Spirit that's living inside of us. And in some ways, he doesn't become as loud or as active in our lives. We, we lose that, that fellowship that we long to have with God. We lose it because of sin. And so while Christ has paid for sin in full, amen, hallelujah, yes, there is an importance for us to understand what sin is and to stray away from it. Or your conscience will get seared and you'll think what's bad is actually okay or, and you won't be able to hear anymore. And so when Paul lays out all these sins, he's saying, hey, look, you have to teach the people these things are not good or healthy to do or to think. Like we have to live differently. We have to think right that we may live differently, that we may live the way that God has intended it. And so that's why I always say it's important for us to understand the doctrine of sin, the, the importance of sin, that we may not stray from it. It's really tragic, honestly, when, when Christians begin to go off course because they refuse solid doctrine the way that Paul is saying here. 
A lot of you guys have seen it on a national scale, like even high-level pastors who begin to slowly but surely shift more and more away from what we would consider strong doctrine and at some point end up almost leaving the faith as a whole or saying things that no other Christian has ever said in all of history. And they start believing these as true. Why? Because they start straying off course. But unfortunately, we see it even on the individual level, even in the life of the church, There have been so many people where two, three weeks into this mentality they start having, where they start sinning, they start seeing the significance of sin. I see it in their lives and slowly but surely they end up falling away from the Lord, veering off course and not running hard for the sake of the gospel anymore. Why? Because they don't think about the importance of sin, the importance of having strong doctrine within all this, okay? And so Paul is saying that the law is good if one knows how to use it lawfully. Question, Do you know how to use the law lawfully? What is the purpose of the law? Do you know how to apply this into your life? How does the law coincide with the gospel? Because that's an important truth, right? And so uh, 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 if you don't know in your head how to apply this into your heart, then how can you experience the good that Paul talks about there in verse 8? You can't. Doctrine is important. John Calvin says this about this section and about the law in general. He said, The law is the best instrument both to teach us the Lord's will and to exhort us to do it. For by frequent meditation upon it, believers will be aroused to obedience, be strengthened in it, and be drawn back from the slippery path of transgression. Indeed, it is in this joyous obedience that authentic Christian freedom is to be found. Calvin then goes on to explain the three purposes of the law in Scripture. He says the first is punitive. What that means is this, to condemn sinners, which is you and I, people who sin, and to draw them to God. In other words, when we see the law, we realize I cannot complete that. I cannot do that. I cannot follow that to perfection. I need help. I need a savior. And in comes Jesus. And so the first idea of this law is showing, look, this is how God lives. He is holy. He is just. He is perfect. And you're not, buddy. Right? You fall kind of short of that, man. And we go, man, how the heck am I supposed to keep this then? I need a savior. The second is this deterrent, is to restrain evildoers. This is my analogy I used earlier about lying or murdering. When we say, hey, look, these things are bad. They may not be Christians. They may not, not follow God. But when we say, hey, look, like, this is an important thing to think, it actually curves evil is what it does. And so people who would naturally be more inclined to do things that are anti-gospel, when the law is placed in there, it actually curbs their evil, Okay. That's why it's important, by the way, which once again, we'll talk about politics in two weeks, but it's important because a lot of times I'll hear Christians say, you can't legislate morality. That's true. You can't change a heart, but you can definitely curb the evil in the world. You can definitely make it in such a way where we're actually more aligning ourselves with the Lord and therefore more quick to actually align ourselves completely and fully with who he is. And so it's important this is. And then the third is educative. It's to teach and to exhort believers And so it's to help us to see, hey, here's how we should live. And so what if one of our understandings about the law is off in this? Like, like what if if we have bad doctrine and and we think that the law is only punitive, okay? It's only to uh, uh, show us that we need a savior. Then as Christians, we're just gonna throw away the law. We're gonna say, well, we don't really need it. And then how are we going to know how to live our lives in light of the gospel if we don't even have the law to show us, hey, here's how you live? If we say, hey, I'm just using it to show me that I need a savior, that's it. We don't know what to do. What we also do is that we don't realize that we actually need it in the world around us to help us understand how God would have the world at large at live, okay? Put it like this. The law without the gospel is condemnation only, and that sucks, right? It's diagnosis without remedy. If we just have the law, that's it. There's no savior. There's no second piece of that. It says, hey, you all are screwed. Sorry, right? And there's no amens to that, right? But the other thing is that gospel without law, if we just reject the law, if we don't call sin, sin, if we don't actually live, then the gospel is good news to people who don't think that they need it. It's good news to people who don't think there's any bad news out there. Why would I accept this good news of the gospel if I don't think there's a need for it? And so we have to have both. Paul says, look, the law is good when you learn how to use it lawfully, Only when both are present do we see true beauty. So bad doctrine leads to bad actions, which leads to our loss of joy, our loss of protection, or even our loss of value, okay? Have I convinced you to pull out your systematic theologies? 
Three people. There we go. I'm, I'm trying, all right? You three people disciple the rest of us, all right? That we would know this. I know that this isn't a topic that's like, rah, rah, let's go, let's stir up our hearts. But I hope you realize the importance of your brain being stirred up and thinking the right things for Christ. Don't be bored with this, okay? You be bored with the sermon. Maybe I'm not preaching well. It's okay, all right? But don't be bored with this, with the Bible, with understanding the deeper truths of God. It's important, okay, to not forsake the deeper truths of Scripture. Let's read our last verse for today, verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. C.S. Lewis said this about doctrine. I, I love this quote. For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than devotional books. And I rather suspect the same experience may await others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. I love that part, okay? I've never had a quiet time with a pipe in my teeth, but C.S. Lewis did it, so it must be gold, all right? But he says, look, he's not ragging devotionals necessarily, okay? So there, there may be value, there may be importance for that. But when you tread deep with God, your heart will explode with joys unimaginable, is what he's saying, when you actually realize how deep God is, how beautiful he is, how, how true he is, how, how deep the gospel runs into everything in life, you will explode. And so some of you guys are wondering, man, why aren't I feeling this? Why aren't I connected with the Lord? Where is my heart at? It's because your brain's not there. You've shut this portion off and expecting this portion to come alive, but they work together. And sometimes as you grow deeper in your understanding of God, your heart naturally comes alive. Or orthodoxy leads to doxology, our second point. Well, orthodoxy leads to worship. Why do I say it? Do you see the language Paul is using there at the end in verse 11? The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You know what Paul could have just said? The gospel. Because that would have been a true statement. <laughs> Right? Anything that's contrary to the gospel. But Paul starts this idea of worship. And what actually happens is he then goes into some of his testimony. And then if you jump down to verse 17, which we're not going to read this week, we'll read next week. But he breasts out this huge doxology. And he worships God and he, he praises God. Why? He's thinking about God, what God has done in his life and these truths about God. Paul is worshiping. When you think right and when you think deep about God, your soul comes alive. And so some of you don't have deep fellowship or intimacy as you would wish because you're not growing in your knowledge of God. You're stuck. You're still drinking milk. And that's it. And at some point, it's time to grow up, Paul says, Hebrews says. At some point, it's time to go deeper. You're staying on the surface level. Paul says, hey, don't just swim in the kiddie pool. Man, dive in the deep end. Well, I don't know how to swim. Well, learn. <laughs> right? Like, understand that there's something better than just splashing around in two inches of water that the last kid peed in, you're sitting in there pee anyway, right? Like there's something better. There's something deeper. There's something more, okay? I can remember so many times where I learned various truths or, or different things about God that were like massive. I give you several examples, like things in the Word where all of a sudden they like came alive. It was like the Holy Spirit planted like an IED in my head and I stepped on it and my brain exploded, right? With this beautiful truths of God, okay? There was one time in particular, uh, I was at Bowling Green State University where I went to school at. And there we go, BG, Falcon, let's go. Um, and some of you are like, what the heck is that? It doesn't matter, it's in Ohio, it's a tiny school, don't worry about it. Um, and I was sitting in our union, and it's the second floor, and I'm reading Romans 8, and all of a sudden, the doctrine of the hypostatic union is what theologians call it. Jesus being 100% man and 100% God started making sense through scripture. And I had honestly never seen this truth before. I was a young believer, and I was like, wait a minute, Jesus was God? And he was man. And I started reading what Paul was writing here and seeing all the implications of it that God, though 100% divine in all of who he is, gave up himself and became a man like me that I might understand him. He incarnated himself, yet he was still God. Therefore, he was able to save me and my brain exploded. Okay, and I started thinking, man, this is crazy. And I start going through all the scripture and I'm seeing and what's happening? I'm worshiping. I'm coming alive. I'm giving God the honor that is due to him. And so literally, I, I sit up from my seat. I'm in the middle of like a public union. And I just start holding my head and I'm going like this. 
And I'm like thinking, I probably look like I'm out of my mind, right? And at some point I was holding my head and the union railing on the second floor, I don't know why, is only about like this high. I'm 6'4", and I'm walking and I just started like falling over it and I almost fell off the union, okay? And so correct and good theology could end in your death, maybe, all right? But it'll be a good and glorious death in which you'll be worshiping God, all right? That's my, <laughs> um, good doctrine leads to your worship of God. Good doctrine leads to your heart coming alive. If your heart is dead, maybe that's part of the reason why. It's because you're not thinking deep about God. Okay, finally, here's the last point. And the beautiful thing within all this, we said that orthodoxy leads to right thinking or to orthopraxy, which means to right living, right? We said that orthodoxy leads to doxology or to praise and worship. Why though? Why does it lead to praise? Why does it lead to worship? Well, Paul mentions it again in verse 11, the gospel. It's the gospel. Paul says that he was entrusted with this, right? What does the word entrusted mean? Entrusted with this glorious message. Every single time Paul uses the word entrusted in the New Testament, he's talking about the gospel, that he was entrusted with this gift where God said, man, go spread this to the world at large. And Paul said, I was entrusted with this. I need to deliver this because this is good news. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is what I have. Orthodoxy leads to Christ. Orthodoxy leads to the gospel, to Christ our hope, Paul says in verse one. Christ is our literal hope. He is our hope. We don't hope in something else. Christ is our hope. To Christ our joy, to Christ our peace, to God our salvation, he says once again in verse one there. Orthodoxy points us to our hope and to our joy and to our peace that our hearts actually crave and desire and that is found in the person and work in Christ. And so it doesn't just affect our knowledge, orthodoxy or, or right thinking, doctrine, doesn't just affect our knowledge and our head, though it does do that. It doesn't just affect our hearts, our praise, where we start worshiping, though it does do that. And it doesn't just affect our actions, our, our living, though it does do that, but it makes our souls free. It makes us realize the gift that we have in Christ of salvation. This is... This is monumental then. This is necessary then that we actually draw deep in God because it points us back to Christ in the first place. All of us fall short of God. We see that in verses nine and 10. Well, that's what it's showing us. All of us fall short. All of us sin. All of us are messed up at some point, which is why the glorious gospel is so important. Good doctrine tells us that we're lawbreakers, but that we have one who is perfect. We have one who kept the law in perfection. And if we believe in him, then his works are imputed or they're placed upon us where we receive his righteousness. By faith, we receive what the law requires and Christ takes away our sin and gives us righteousness. Flip over to John chapter 14 really quickly. So our last piece of scripture for today. John chapter 14, verse six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter one, it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus is the orthodoxies of all orthodoxy. Jesus is the truth. He is the correct thinking. He is the highest pinnacle. He is all of the right philosophy, all of the right theology, all of the right doctrine, all embodied in a person for us to see. Jesus is the truth. This is crazy. Jesus had all correct thinking. He had all correct actions. He had all correct worship because he was centered around the Father because he is literally the truth. He is the orthodoxy. Correct thinking leads us to Christ because Christ is correct thinking. Christ is the truth. And so you have the ability not just to learn about truth, but listen, friends, you have the ability to know truth. Like, not just no truth, that deserves at least one amen. You have the ability not just to know truth, like, like systematically walking through this ideas. You have the ability to know, to be intimately connected to truth, to a person, to Jesus. He's the orthodoxies of all orthodoxy. You have the ability to know him. And so what do we do with that then? What do we do with that? Well, if you're not a Christian, if, if you're wrestling, if you're trying to figure out, man, man, who is God? What does this look like? No truth. No truth. Jesus has made himself available for you to know, not just in your head, but in your heart. 
not just with your heart, but with your lives. Jesus can come in and affect all of us, and he's been made available for all of us to know in a deep and an intimate way. And so if you don't know Christ, I would encourage you, man, no truth. You're missing out. You're missing out on this depth, this rich, this beautiful person that we call Jesus and who we worship, but you have it freely offered to you. Man, accept that free gift. If you're a believer, I would say, dive deep with the Lord. Get to know him more. Don't be content with just little, small, cheap devotionals like, like, like Spurgeon was hitting at. Man, dive deep into the depths of who God is. And if you're at the well, okay, one of the things that we're currently in the process of working on is these four courses in hopes to build our knowledge of God. So as a church, we want to exalt disciple sin. There's a chart that we have here, okay? Exalt disciple sin is kind of what we think of as a church. Throughout the course of the book, we're going to tackle a disciple and sin as well. That's not what we're talking about today, so you can ignore the second two pieces, all right? Today, we're talking about exalt, or this idea of doctrine, this right thinking. How is it that we become Christ-centered in all that we do? How do we make much of Jesus? How do we exalt Jesus? How do we point to Jesus, okay? And so in that second chart, um, I purposely didn't fill out all the rest of this so that you guys would not be distracted in this, all right? We'll look at this over uh, later. But what we're doing right now is we're developing this curriculum where you can take it and you can do it in community groups. You could do it one-on-one -on -one with individuals. You could do it one-on-three. You can do it in a classroom type setting. You can do it in many different ways in which you can grow in your doctrine and your understanding of who God is. And so we want you to grow deep with God, not just right thinking or not just right living, not just, but we want your whole person to grow in the knowledge, in the depth of God. As you see, we don't have any three, okay? And that's okay, we're working on it right now. We have it about 75% done. Out of the 75% done, we really have like 25% that's complete and ready to roll out, all right? But what we're hoping is that as the fall approaches, we would have all this to roll out where you'd be able to use some of this and grow in your understanding of who God is. Why? Because doctrine matters. And later in the book, we'll look at character and ministry skill. Those matter too, okay? But doctrine matters. What we think about God matters, okay? And so don't just swim in the kiddie pool. Jump into the hurricane of who God is. He has made himself known to you. Dive into the depths of that knowledge of God. You will not be sorry. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you, God, did not leave us groping around in the dark trying to figure out who you were. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that we have the ability to know you in deep and in beautiful ways through your word. God, will we grow deep with you, God? Will we grow into a richness, into a, a truth, into a deeper understanding of who you are, God? Would we be able to really worship you because our hearts are grow growing deep with you, God? Would you help us to live the right way because we think the right way? Would you shape our mind? Would you shift the way that we think about life and the world around us and you at large and, and how you would have us live? God, would you give us good doctrine? God, don't just make us a people who, who can sing loud songs or, or who can even serve, but God, make us a people who think correctly too. God, those things are great. We want those. Amen, hallelujah. Give those to us too. But Holy Spirit, convict us. When we are being shallow, man, call us into deeper and deeper affections with you. You say deep calls to deep. God, you are deep. Call us deeper with you. Lord, we love you. I pray that we would know truth, that we would know you, Jesus, know truth as a person, and that we would worship you. Praise in your very beautiful name. Amen. Um, we're going to sing two songs here at the end um, instead of our normal three. Um, and at some point during those two songs, if you're a believer in here, I would encourage you, man, take communion. There's communion set up at four different parts of the room. And what that represents is Christ's body, the bread, is a representation of his body that was broken for us. And the juice that you'll rip off the piece of bread and dip it into is representation of his blood that was poured out or spilled out for us. Friends, listen to me. We were ignorant of who God was, but because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we can know God in our heads, in our hearts, with our hands. We can know God deeply.
And so, man, when you take communion, thank God for that sacrifice that he has made himself available and to be known by you. Okay, uh, we also have ushers come forward at this moment and collect tithes and offerings. And so please drop your communication cards in there. Um, if you're a guest or a visitor, don't feel the, the pressure, the need to give. That's not what this is about. It's a time for us to, to worship the Lord and to give back to him the things that he has given to us. When that's finished passing, I would encourage you, even as the words on the screen that we're about to sing, man, don't just sing this blindly. Listen to me, think. Think about the truths that you're singing to God. Think about the depth in some of these lyrics. Think about what you're saying. Think about how glorious and good God is. Let correct thinking lead your heart into doxology, into praise, into correct worship. Because God is worthy, friends. He is worthy to be praised. Once the offering basket passes, I encourage you to stand and let's finish singing to our great and glorious God. I love you guys.